I'm Sherry, and welcome to One Curl at a Time, where we talk about hopes, wishes, and making dreams come true, and where we celebrate entrepreneurs and people pursuing their passion. This week, I am on location. I am in Horton Bay, Michigan, which is a little burg in between Boyne City, Michigan, and Charlevoix, Michigan, and I am at an Ernest Hemingway celebration. I have Dr. Stephen Hemingway, a professor from 1972 at Hope College with me. Dr. Hemingway, introduce yourself, and besides having the same last name as Ernest Hemingway, what piqued your interest in Ernest Hemingway's life and works? I just started last week my 51st year teaching at Hope College, and for four times I've been able to do a course on Ernest Hemingway. It's not my specialty at all, but it is because of the name. And Everyone calls the class Hemingway on Hemingway, and they mostly mispronounce my name or his. Even when I was typing up remarks here about Ernest Hemingway for Horton Bay, I found I was spelling his name my way, just as a, sort of a mistake. You have presented works from the Nick Adams series written by Ernest Hemingway at today's dedication. Could you please read some of the excerpts that you read mm -hmm. earlier today? It was fun to put these together, too, because I think my introduction will ex explain why. Uh, residents of Horton Bay, neighbors and friends, admirers of Ernest Hemingway and his northern Michigan roots, the community of Horton Bay is mentioned more than any other place on earth in the short stories of Hemingway. Let me thank Sue Metzger and her late husband, Bob, owners of Ernest's favorite cottages, Pinehurst and Shangri-La, here in Horton Bay, for organizing and orchestrating this unveiling and dedication of a John Sauvé sculpture as part of John's project to put memories of Hemingway in many Michigan locales. Let me thank John also for his creativity and originality. We're all sitting or standing next to these two 19th century Dilworth cottages across from the General Store in Red Fox Inn and about a three-minute walk to the dock on Horton Bay. Sonny Hemingway, one of Ernest's younger sisters, entitled Chapter 10 of her book, Ernie, A Weekend at Horton Bay. Here we are all enjoying our own Labor Day weekend at Horton Bay on the exact spots where the kind and devoted brother Ernest protected Sonny's innocence and where the more insensitive Ernest shocked his readers with Up in Michigan, a tale of sexual assault. Both of these stories take place right where we're all standing. Let me begin with passages from these two contrasting stories and then entertain you with loving excerpts about Horton Bay and Horton Creek. One time for a special treat, Mother let me go with Ernie to Horton's Bay for the weekend. I stayed at the Dilworths and Ernie stayed with friends. To get there, we rowed across Walloon Lake from our cottage. Then tying the boat securely to a tree and hiding our oars down the beach, we picked up our small extra sacks and tramped on foot over the rutty, sandy road. The Dilworths welcomed me and showed me the room I was to have. We younger children were always welcomed at the Dilworths and at the blacksmith shop owned by Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim would let us watch him shoe horses and when he wasn't busy at the forge, would let Ursula and me use the big bellows to make horseshoe nail rings and such treasures. And the Dilworths had a big rope swing to enjoy, and there were often kittens to play with in the barn. Mother, to be Grace Hemingway, painted a scene of the roadway looking toward Uncle Jim's blacksmith shop. 
Tarsu Metzger, who uh, is the owner of, of this home, has a copy of that picture that you can all see right outside the blacksmith shop today. Ernest's mother also painted a lovely picture of the church in Horton's Bay, where Ernest and his first wife, Hadley, were married. This church, too, has since been torn down. The old country store is still standing up, and many of the residences of old Horton Bay are well kept up. The road down to the shore is still about the same, though we used to see much many more lady slippers and wildflowers. The old enormous dock at the foot of the road and the big warehouse we call the beanery are long since gone. The shoreline looks different to me now, and the old natural Horton Creek that Ernie so often took me fishing on is unrecognizable. Anyway, I settled in at the Dilworths that weekend, and soon Ernie came back with his friends and asked me if I'd like to play baseball with them. We had a happy time playing for a couple of hours in the open field. And Ernie told me I'd done fine. He was usually the only one of our family who ever showed he was proud of me for anything. Ernie heard there was to be a big barn dance that night not too far away. He told me that he'd take me if I'd promised not to give him any trouble. So I promised. After supper, I put on my Sunday dress that I had brought for church. Auntie Beth Dilworth said she thought it was all right for me to go, but not to stay too late, as she would be waiting up for me. When we arrived, the music was playing loud. There was a distinctive barn odor of dust and hay. I danced a bit with some of the younger boys, and soon I was a tired kid. It had been a big day. Across the floor, I could see and hear my brother and his group having very noisy fun. The next fellow who asked me to dance got my refusal. Maybe he thought I wanted to go out and sit in one of the cars, as so many other girls had left the floor to do. So he invited me to rest this one out and get a little fresh air. This sounded fine to me, so without telling Ernie, I disappeared. We hadn't even gotten seated in the back seat of a car before Ernie came running out, hollering. When he found us, he grabbed the boy and began shouting loudly and wildly about my being just a kid and that he was my big brother and responsible for me. He was furious. On the way back to the barn, he gave me a lecture and sat me down in a chair near the fiddler. He told me firmly not to get off that chair until he came for me. On the ride back to the Dilworth's house, Ernie lectured me very forcefully in front of his friends. Never go out to sit in a car with a fellow unless you want to be necked. Never let a man press you against a wall and never lie down on the grass with one nearby. It was more than likely that he and his friends returned to the barn dance after they deposited me at the Dilworth's. Before they left, though, Ernie made a date for us to go fishing in the morning down at Horton's Creek. After an early breakfast, we walked together down the narrow road to the dock. Ernie instructed me regarding being noisy or conspicuous when fishing for trout. He thought it best to wear dark clothes and make no unnecessary movements. Since he usually brought back a lot of fish, I trusted his advice. Later, we gathered up our gear and walked back up the road to clean and give the trout to Aunt Beth to cook for lunch. After lunch, we went over to the general store to buy some sweet goodies. That store, which, by the way, is still in existence, and the owners spoke here today, was loaded with beautiful things. What variety? There was fishing stuff, wearing apparel, corncob pipes, bakery goods, all flavors of pop. It seemed to me that they had something of everything there. The only problem was how to find it. While walking, Ernie and I talked of many things, but neither of us brought up the subject of the barn dance. I kept expecting another lecture, but he had evidently decided to let the matter drop and enjoy the last of our weekend together. That Here, excerpt was excellent. Was Ernest Hemingway's sister also a writer? Because I think that that is written beautifully. Mm -hmm. More than one of his sisters did write a book. They were encouraged to do this because he became so famous. And of course, they had spent a lot of time with him because the family 
had a home on Walloon Lake, which he always tried to get away from to get out of the, the way of his mother, who pressured him to do a lot of things or not to do a lot of other things. He was the second of, of the, the six children. So most of these girls knew him when he was in Oak Park, Illinois, or in, in Michigan with him, not so much in the, in the latter years after his marriages. They, a lot of them wrote about those early days. Dr. Hemingway, could you give our listeners some information about the Nick Adams stories and then read some excerpts from them? Sure. And there's actually a book that uh, came out edited by Philip Young, I think, in 1972. So this is 11 years after Ernest Hemingway had already died. With these Nick Adams stories put out as a book, many of them were individual stories. Some had been published in magazines. Others had been published in some of his books of short stories. They had never been put all together. I'll start with Summer People. Halfway down the gravel road from Horton's Bay, right near the bay, there was a a spring by the lake. The water came up in a tile sunk beside the road, lipping over the cracked edge of the tile and flowing away through close-growing mint into the swamp. And you can walk down the street right now and see that mint right there. In the dark, Nick put his arm down into the spring but could not hold it there because of the cold. He felt the featherings of the sand spouting up from the spring cones at the bottom against his fingers. Nick thought, I wish I could put all of myself in there. I bet that would fix me. He pulled his arm out, sat down at the edge of the road. It was a hot night. The last good country starts with Nick watching that same area. The bottom of the spring where the sand rose in small spurts with bubbling water. There was a tin cup on a forked stick that was stuck in the gravel by the spring, and Nick Adams looked at it and at the water rising and flowing clear in its gravel. When the Indians moved away, uh, Nick observes that there used to be successful Indians here, people who owned farms and worked them, grew old and fat with many children and grandkids. Indians like Simon Green, who lived on Horton Creek and had a big farm. He was dead now, though and his children had sold the farm to divide the money and gone off somewhere. Nick remembered Simon Green sitting in a chair in front of the blacksmith's shop at Horton's Bay, perspiring in the sun while his horses were being shod. Nick was spading up the cool, moist dirt under the caves of the shed to dig worms for his fishing. He sifted dirt into his can of worms and filled back the earth he had spaded. Outside in the sun, Simon Green sat in the chair. Hello, Nick, he said as Nick came out. Hello, Mr. Green. Going fishing? Yes. And fishing becomes such an important dominant theme, not only in the Nick Adams stories, but for those of you who have read novels such as The Sun Also Rises and The Old Man and the Sea, the fishing plays a big role in both of those books. In the story, A Three-Day Blow, teenage friend of Nick Adams, Bill, this is during Prohibition, of course, and they're, they're also minors, gets a bottle of whiskey from his dad's cabinet and pours out the drinks. That's an awfully big shot, Nick said. Not for us, Bill said. What do we drink for? To Nick asked, holding up his glass. Let's drink to fishing, Bill said. All right, Nick said. Gentlemen, I give you fishing. All fishing, Bill said, everywhere. Fishing, Nick said. That's what we all drink to. I think you get the point about fishing. Another story called On Writing. There's a line, just a single line in this one paragraph. All his love went into fishing in the summer. He had loved it more than anything. He had loved fishing at the bay, reading in the hammock on hot days, swimming off the dock, playing baseball at Charlevoix and Petoskey, living at the bay, the madams cooking, eating in the dining room, looking out the window across the fields and the point to the lake, talking with her, the fishing trips away from the farm. And then, a few lines later, something different happens that 
entrances Hemingway's scholars, he has this line where he says, Nick in the stories was never himself. He made him up. It's very easy to think that all these things happened to Nick, and I think some of them did, but he says no there. He wished he could be a good writer. He said, maybe a great writer. I'm pretty sure I will be, but it's hard though. To be a great writer if you love the world and living it in special people, it's hard when you love so many places. Then you were healthy and felt good and were having a good time, and what the hell? Other times when you had to write, then you felt sometimes you could never write, but after a while, you soon knew you would write another good story. This is the young Ernest Hemingway, I think, really setting his goals for the future. Writing was really more fun than anything. It was simply that it was the greatest pleasure. It had more bite to it than anything else. It was so damn hard to write well. Then back again to Summer Hill, they went up on the hill where the road turned into the grove of trees around the church. There were no lights in any of the houses they passed. Horton's Bay was asleep. No motor cars. I'll walk up as far as the cottage with you, Nick said. He unhooked the screen door to the kitchen, wrapped up some fried chicken and two pieces of cherry pie in oiled paper, and then later he stood up. He came through the wet grass to the cottage and upstairs to his room. It was good to be in bed, sheets, stretching out full length, dipping his head on the pillow. Good in bed, comfortable, happy, fishing tomorrow. He prayed as he always prayed when he remembered to do so for his family, himself, to be a great writer, and yes, for good fishing. And this moves us to my final story, which is called The End of Something, and you won't be surprised that it begins in the old days. Horton's Bay was a lumbering town. No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws. Then one year there were no more logs to make lumber. The sails of the schooners were filled and moved on to the open lake carrying with it everything that had made the mill a mill in Horton's Bay a town. The one-story bunkhouses, the eating house, the company store, the mill offices, the big mill itself stood deserted in the acres of sawdust that covered the swampy meadow by the shore of the bay. Ten years later, there was nothing left of the mill except the broken white limestone of its foundations. Uh, Nick and Marjorie, his then girlfriend, were rowing along and they were trolling on the way to the point to set night lines for rainbow trout. They rowed the boat around to the troll, past the feeding fish, then headed to the point. The perch swam in the water pail. Nick caught three of them with his hands and cut their heads off and skinned them. Marjorie sat on the blanket, her back to the fire, and waited for Nick. He came over and sat down beside her on the blanket. In back of them was the close second growth timber of the point, and in front was the bay of Horton's Creek. There's going to be a moon tonight, said Nick. He looked across the bay, Horton Bay, to the hills that were beginning to sharpen against the sky. Beyond the hills, he knew. In a few hours tonight, the moon will be coming up again in Horton Bay. Horton Bay has a legendary logging and literary history. John Sauvé's sculpture of Ernest Hemingway represents a new and vital vision for Horton Bay as the monument to a productive past and the cradle of a fantastic future. Thank you. Dr. Hemingway, thank you so much for reading those excerpts from the Nick Adams series. One more question. Right. How are Ernest Hemingway's works, novels, relevant to today's readers? Mm -hmm. I think in particular in with the, the Nick Adams stories and just listening to some of the other people who spoke today whom I've talked with, so many young people, male or female, can relate to the sense of frustration <laughs> that teenagers often feel with restrictions that parents are making on them.
and certainly Ernest Hemingway did that. And I find when just just a lot of students write journals about, oh, I can relate to this, you know, I wouldn't have been that mean to my mother. So many of the short stories are, even in books for potential creative writers, you have to have stories by Ernest Hemingway in them because he is so crisp with what his writing is. That he's known for the short sentences, the great descriptions of nature. He got a lot, by the way, from his job when he was 17 and 18 with the Kansas City Star as a journalist. And he read their rules on how you write newspaper articles. And you can't be verbose. You have to be much quicker. I think even within the Up in Michigan story and, and just the way sexuality is treated in a lot of these works, these stories tell us so much about gender relations today. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of things that Ernest Hemingway would have said about the Native Americans or about African Americans or people in other countries because he travels a lot. Uh, some of that, it's part of what the time was, part of its characters. It doesn't mean that Ernest Hemingway is, is thinking that way. Dr. Hemingway, thank you for giving our listeners a little more insight into the life and works of Ernest Hemingway. And also, thank you for being on One Curl Podcast. Thank you. I want to thank my executive producer for her continued expert advice and support of my podcast. A very special thanks to Sue Metzger for the Ernest Hemingway celebration at Pinehurst and Shangri-La Homes, to John Sauvé for the dedication of a sculpture honoring Ernest Hemingway, and to Professor Stephen Hemingway for reading excerpts from Ernest Hemingway's books. Of course, I want to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to write a comment, my email address is curlschangetheworld at gmail.com. Again, curlschangetheworld at gmail.com. You can listen to my podcast on the following apps, Anchor and Spotify. And you can follow me on Instagram at curlschangetheworld. Ernest Hemingway loved fishing, which is evident in many of the Nick Adams short stories and some of his most popular novels. The song I chose is Just Fishing, written by Casey Beathard. Monty Criswell, and Ed Hill, and recorded by country music artist Trace Adkins. It was released in March of 2011. Just Fishing is a song about a father who is fishing with his daughter. The little daughter only worries about catching fish, but father says that they are not just fishing, but also making memories. Listeners, you are here to give the gift of you. Always believe something wonderful is about to happen, and remember... I'm changing the world, one curl at a time. Enjoy. I'm lost in her there, holding that pink rotten reel. She's doing almost everything but sitting still. Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels and her kittens. And she thinks we're just fishing. Say daddy loves you baby one more time She says I know, I think I've got a bite And all this laughing, crying, smiling, dying here inside's what I call living And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time 
nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about what's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing She's already pretty like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy, give her daddy fits And I better do this every chance I get Cause time is ticking, it is And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious Yeah.